0: Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to lawyers, the business of law, and the new approaches to solving the access to justice crisis that continues to fly under the radar. In today's episode, we chat about one of the biggest hurdles to accessing legal help, the price tag. It's no secret that lawyers are expensive, and when people walk into a lawyer's office often you will see them grimacing, knowing that when they leave their wallets will be noticeably lighter. Now, to be clear, we are not advocating for a moratorium on lawyers charging high prices. High value, time intensive legal matters exist, and if you're dealing with a complex legal issue, it likely makes sense for you to go with the opulent package. But where the problem emerges is when you don't need the luxury solution. Sometimes you just want a McDouble or a $15 bottle of wine or a Kia to get you from A to B. Why does it seem that a Porsche is the only option when it comes to legal services? On the show today, Aaron Klug, lawyer, co-founder and COO of Epilogue Wills, talks about how his company is attempting to solve this issue when it comes to estate planning and what the legal profession can do better to address this discrepancy. Our conversation covers everything from the problems with the billable hour, changing the way that lawyers are educated, the benefits of multidisciplinary practices, and why some of the regulations may need to be changed in order to allow non-lawyers to deliver certain legal services. If you're in the market for a will, make sure you check out epilogue. Links, as always, are in the show notes. All right. That is it for me. I hope you enjoy today's show. Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Uh, We are very happy to have you. You're the second member of Epilogue Wills on the podcast. So we appreciate you both uh, giving us the time that I know is very valuable for entrepreneurs. So where are we finding you today?
1: Uh, you're finding me in my basement where I am um, <laughs> most days now, get, getting uh, good work done though. It's really easy to be connected to our team. Our team has been fantastic in terms of working remotely and it's uh, we really have a, a great team and a great working environment, even though we can't be physically in the same space. And you've yes.
2: properly traded in the uh, lawyer wardrobe for something a little comfier, I see. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, m- moving from suits to uh, sweatshirts and slippers was a big yeah, the, bonus. As far the as the
2: hoodie, think. the hoodie is the perfect startup getup.
1: Absolutely, I'm hey.
2: obnoxious, so I'm constantly flagging the good lawyer <laughs> shirt, even when I'm home alone. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, like, I it, like
0: the hoodie. It's actually all he has left in his wardrobe, to be honest. But you guys are primarily based out of Toronto, right? Is that where your your whole team is, or, or do you have
1: members across the country at this point? so our team is all in the Gta um I mean given the situation now people have the flexibility to work from a cottage or uh, you know from uh, somewhere other than their home um, which is which is great as well but we can we can stay constantly connected which is fantastic yeah
0: and no issues with that working remotely. I know it's sort of a, uh, a hot topic of debate. Some people love it. Some people find that it's uh, tough to keep track of everything. Are you able to, to handle this all good? And it seems like everyone's buying in.
1: One of the things, I mean, our team is still relatively small. And so that's helped. Uh, we're still able to get together. We do regular meetings with the whole team. Uh, we've onboarded a bunch of people. Uh, During the pandemic, we've had some students work with us uh, off and on during the pandemic, and it's been pretty seamless. Like everyone else, we sort of find the tools that work for us in terms of working remotely and, uh, and we go with them. Uh, before the pandemic, we were working out of a shared office space down at the, the legal innovation zone in Toronto. but we were even a smaller team then. It was nice to be together and I think it will be nice. I'm looking forward to the day when we can all be back in an office and uh, you know whiteboard some ideas on an actual whiteboard. but you know for now things are still working pretty well.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, But jumping into why we're here today, we actually had your partner on the show a few weeks back to talk about your business, Epilogue Wills, and I encourage everyone to go back and take a listen to that show because we uh, go into a lot of the story of how you guys came to be and and some of the challenges that you've overcome in in the last year and a half or so that you guys have been kicking around. Uh, Now, obviously, we're not going to rehash everything here today, but uh, and we're here to talk to you about the future of law, but before we uh, jump into that, maybe you can just introduce yourself. Tell us your role with Epilogue Wills and uh, just give a brief view of what you're trying to accomplish with that company.
1: So um, as you know, I'm uh, a lawyer and my co-founder, Daniel Goldgut, uh, who was a guest a few weeks ago, is also a lawyer. We actually practiced together for a period of time in downtown Toronto, and we practiced in the areas of tax and estate law. And one of the things that we noticed uh, when we were practicing is that uh, a lot of people had trouble getting their estate planning done. It was something that a lot of people would start and then stop. Uh, A lot of times it was friends calling me up to say, hey, you know, I just had my first kid. I need to get my will done. One of the first questions was, what's it going to cost me? Mm -hmm. And when I told them what it was going to cost, you know, being a relatively senior tax lawyer at downtown Toronto rates, uh, that was kind of the end of the conversation, uh, unfortunately, for everybody, uh, because it meant that they didn't get their wills done. And again, this circumstance wasn't unique to the people that were calling me or Daniel. Uh, We looked into it and we saw that over half of Canadian adults don't have any will or uh, powers of attorney in place, even the most basic Planning that you could have is, is not there. So that really motivated Daniel and I to start epilogue. And what we do is we help people create their own wills and powers of attorney. And we do that through an uh, online web-based platform that makes it easy. It's an easy to use platform that makes uh, getting your will done affordable. And you can do it in about 20 minutes online.
2: Amazing. I got a quick question on that. What you were saying earlier there about, you know, at your rates, um, you know, even with the friend, you know, probably the friends and family discount, it still wasn't an attractive option. And, you know, sort of one of the ethos behind good lawyer is the understanding that lawyers have a ton of extra capacity that is not being filled at those rates. So my question for you is, when you were working at the firm, um, you know, were you in a role where you were out looking for work? Were you primarily working, you know, under senior partners or you know, did you find that you had excess capacity or like, how did that trans translate for you?
1: My, my practice was always relatively busy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I, uh, most of my work, certainly, you know, when I was more junior or mid-level, um, did come from partners in my group mm-hmm. and it was a very busy group. The, the firm that we worked at was unique in the sense that uh, I was part of the tax group. Uh, but in most mm-hmm. Large firms, at least, and certainly the firm that I started my practice in, the tax groups are really there to service the corporate groups. Most totally. so of the deal flow is through the corporate groups, and so the tax and the tax group is there to opine on the tax elements of these transactions. Uh, the firm that I was at was a little bit different in so far as a lot of the workflow actually was generated by the tax group. Uh, so the partners that I worked directly for uh, had very busy practices; it kept me relatively busy, uh, mm-hmm. and then as I got more senior. Trying to build out my own practice. But again, when you're doing that in a tax practice, you're not starting with the uh, massive tax reorganizations. I mean, those are things that, you know, even as a mid level to senior, uh, you're not necessarily taking on your own. So the files that I was generating on my own was more of the estate planning files. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, that, that's interesting.
0: So, uh, and I'm sure anyone who has dealt with lawyers in any substantial way at all no recognize the problem that you identified there that lawyers can be expensive so before you started epilog what what did you do with all these people that were coming to you looking for that uh, estate planning advice and obviously being priced out of the market was there good alternatives that you could send them to at the time or were you kind of saying hey sorry i can't help that i don't really have many great alternatives for you or what like what was your process when you encountered that
1: yeah so i think you know, what my process was then is very different than what my process would be now if somebody approached me with the same problem. Because back then, um, you know, and I say this all the time, if somebody approached me with this idea, with an online will solution three years ago, I probably wouldn't have had a great reaction to it. I probably would have been very skeptical of the idea. And so when somebody came to me and ultimately said, you know what, I, I can't pay what your rates are to, to get the, my estate planning done for me and my spouse, um, I would try to explain to them how the value is there, right, and uh, rather than refer them to somebody else because in my mind, um, you know, we specialized in estate planning. We did a lot of things that other people couldn't do, and there was value in that, and, you know, upon reflection, sort of looking back at that, I, I can probably say in all honesty that I was uh, not... I was maybe doing a disservice to them because instead of sort of tailoring what I was going to offer as a service and say, well, I'm prepared to offer what I'll call a lesser service for a lesser price. My mentality at the time was, okay, I maintain a very high level of service. I offer a premium product. I charge a premium price and the value is there. So I'm going to justify the price for the service that I'm providing. So You know, just in reflection, thinking about it, I can probably say that I wasn't giving these people good alternatives. Rather, I was kind of explaining to them why I was the best alternative.
0: Mm -hmm. So so what changed then? Like you said, a few years ago, you would have been skeptical about something that you ultimately started epilogue wills. What, what in the course of your practice said, Hey, you know what, I actually do think that we can simplify this process, streamline it and, and make this a useful tool for many people looking for affordable legal help in this area. Yeah. Like put bluntly, like, why were you skeptical?
1: Um, yeah, so I mean, to, to answer that question, I was skeptical because uh, I think there was a period in time where I thought that, you know, the work that we were doing was, quote unquote, lawyerly work, right? It's work that only a lawyer could do. And there's no substitute for that. But what I come to realize, I've come to realize, and um, particularly when you look at the facts, like I said before, over half of Canadian adults don't have a will, which means that if they're not going to do a will with me as their lawyer, well, their most likely alternative was that they were going to do nothing, and that's a terrible outcome, right? So if, if uh, you know they're not able to find a lawyer who can service their needs at a price point that they're willing to pay, they're just going to end up without a will, and that's You know, not what anybody wants, it's not a good outcome for them. And so the thought process changed and became along the lines of, okay, well, if they're not going to go to a lawyer, there should be something there that's available for them at a reasonable price point where they can at least get basic estate planning done. And we're not out there saying, come use epilogue instead of going to a lawyer. We would never say that. We see the value in going to lawyers and there's tremendous value in the advice a lawyer can bring um, for all the reasons that I would have said three years ago. But we're not talking to people saying, you know, come use Epilogue instead of going to a lawyer. We're saying, come use Epilogue instead of doing nothing, which totally. is what most people are going to do if they don't have a service like Epilogue.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's, the, that's like, you know, good lawyers approaching it from a lawyer capacity sort of perspective, which, you know, from, you know, you were working in a firm setting where the work's flowing in, so not a huge concern. But I love how Epilogue has approached you know a very specific problem that you can build a product around that is easy to use and just opens up a new snack bracket so people don't have to decide between nada and you know high billable rates
1: yeah Love the that. the um the analogy i like to give is you know if you walk into a car dealership and you want to buy a car and they say well the only cars that we have are porsches you have to buy a Porsche because that's just the best car. It's got the best performance. It's got the best features. And you say, well, I can't afford a Porsche. I need something else. And they say, well, the Porsche is the only option. You can can buy a Porsche. um, And if you can't afford a Porsche, then we have another option, which is the um, self, you can be a self-represented car supplier. And what you do is you figure out how to build your own car and you buy the parts and you just build your own car. Those are the two options that we can offer you. Well, I mean, that that doesn't make sense, obviously. And, you know, there's there's a whole host of other uh, instances in our own lives where we see that there isn't just, you know, this rule that you have to go to the smartest person in the world to get your services met. I mean, I just want a Kia. (laughs) I just want a Kia. I need I need to get from work from home to work and then back home. That's my objective. I don't need anything fancy and to be told, well, the rules are such that you can only drive something fancy. And if you can't afford it, then we're sorry, no one can help you. I mean, that's not the right approach. And, you know, in our, in our everyday lives, I mean, we have surgeons and physicians and highly trained and specialized people, but if you're looking for medical services, there are acupuncturists and chiropractors and psychologists and dietitians and nutritionists. And, if you want to get your flu shot, again, they're not saying you have to go to a surgeon to get your flu shot. You can walk into the pharmacy and get your flu shot, at least here in Ontario. And this that idea hasn't yet trickled into law so much.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how much how much like what what do you attribute that not trickling into law too. I mean, I think we we're going to touch on some some regulatory stuff in a minute, but you know, this is a good segue. What are your thoughts on the monopoly?
1: <laughs> oh, well, since you put it that way, um, yeah, I think you know we encounter this a lot, and it's uh, it's because again, I'll go back to what I said before. You know, if somebody approached me with this idea of like an alternative way to get estate planning done back you know, three, four years ago when I was practicing, I would have been very hesitant. And we see some lawyers that are hesitant about it. And I think it comes from a defensive place, right? The, this concern that if uh, we start opening up the market to these other players, it's going to eat into our bottom line. So I think when lawyers react in a negative way sort of off the bat, it's coming from that place of uh, concern. And, and I, I do want to be fair. I think there is, you know, lawyers do have a strong sense of wanting to do public good. And I think that for uh, most lawyers as well, there is a concern that if we start to allow non-lawyers into the field, then there's this potential for public harm. Right. So uh, the reaction for a lot of lawyers off the bat to sort of lawyer alternatives, I'll call them, is uh, initially skepticism. Now, I mean, when Daniel and I have these conversations, I think the fact that we are lawyers and we're able to come at this with a sort of practical, experiential-based point mm-hmm. is really helpful for them. And we explain some of the things we've already talked about, right? And 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 the lawyers that are more senior in the profession, uh, who are who understand that we're not taking away any of their clients, the high net worth multi million dollar clients that I was doing work for when I was practicing as an estate lawyer, they're not all of a sudden going to say, Oh, I'm, (laughs) I'm going to drop the firm that I've been at and I'm going to start doing my stuff through epilogue. That's, that's just not going to happen. And that's not our expectation. And then we don't want that to happen, right? Like that's not who we're trying to help here. So, um, but I think, I think that, you know, we're sort of, chipping away. And there's a lot of voices, yours included, in that conversation now trying to help lawyers understand that this, this is this is probably a beneficial thing for them to see other players come into the market or other ways of delivering legal services.
2: Absolutely. And you know, for me, the, the stat that I always like to talk about, because it's just one I will never forget, comes out of the Clio report, 77% of legal needs going unmet. And for me, it's just like blue ocean of people that need legal help that aren't getting it from our profession period. And, you know, we can, you know, do a little pro bono here, a little pro bono there, but it doesn't even make a dent. And, you know, I think, I think, you know, younger lawyers, at least in my experience have been, you know, on the whole really excited about sort of the future and like trying things in new ways. But as you noted, you know, the more senior folks in the profession, who definitely are a little more stuck in their ways there. There's this massive aversion to changing something that I think for a lot of them feels like it's, you know, more or less working. I I don't think nearly enough lawyers really resonate with the access to justice crisis and like what it means and how many people, you know, are going without legal help who are willing to pay for it. They just need it delivered in a new way that isn't, you know, a black box of billable hours.
1: Yep, yeah, that's exactly right. I, I, I don't know who to attribute this idea to, but I saw it somewhere recently, which is, you know, a lot of lawyers hold on to this idea that certain services can only properly be uh, delivered through a lawyer or through a law firm. And it's this idea that we have this system that's only serving, you know, 20% or 25% of the population. But when you're innovating, we don't like your idea, you you young startup that's sort of taking steps into this world. We don't like this idea because it doesn't solve a hundred percent of the people's problems a hundred percent of the time perfectly. So we're gonna poke holes in what you're doing. And uh, I mean, it's just kind of a ludicrous idea, right? Like we have a system that doesn't work right now, but you're absolutely right. I mean, for a lot of people that are very high on the totem pole, I'll say, the system has worked very well for very long. So there's uh, understandably uh, hesitancy to change it.
2: And again, for me, it, it, it comes back to that one, like you, I can just, just simply look at that one statistic. 77% of legal needs are going unmet. Whatever we're doing is horrible. Like it's a <laughs> terrible reflection of like, our sort of role in society in providing affordable and easy to access, you know, legal help that we have been, you know, the privileged few who are allowed to provide for money. And so, you know, whatever we're doing, if that's the number, then I think it's just imperative and shocking if, you know, the leaders of our profession don't make serious moves because it's so obvious that what we're doing now is not, you know, upholding what, in my view, is, you know, sort of our duty to society.
0: Yeah. And and just kind of jumping on that, too, because I do want to talk. My next question really is, do you believe that the regulations governing lawyers need to change? And from I'm inferring from what you've said so far that you probably are in the affirmative on that. But I'll just read you uh, a a, question. Very quick quote here from the uh, uh, CBA uh, Legal Futures Initiative here where it says, there will also be new legal disciplines created such as legal knowledge engineers, legal process analysts, legal support system managers, and legal legal project and risk managers. Paralegal programs should be developed at existing legal education institutions or through new legal institutions and training providers. Essentially stating, you know, maybe lawyers are not the best option in every single legal need. And actually me and Brett were chatting about it yesterday about how you can go to a registry and get a business incorporated. Now they're not technically giving legal advice and that's probably the difference there, but you know, there are already other people practicing law to one degree or another. Uh, Do you see a need for this in in our uh, profession in general to have more of that? And and what other parts of the regulations do you think need to be changed to start accommodating uh, us better serving the public?
1: Yeah, so it's, I mean, you know, there's a clear distinction in my mind, and you've sort of pointed it out, um, between giving legal advice And participating in a legal process, so uh, you know when you are listening to the client's situation and you're applying the law to their facts and advising them as to terms of in terms of best course of action, um, you're giving legal advice. But when you're incorporating a company, for example, assuming you know somebody who's operating a sole proprietorship wants to incorporate facilitating that legal process. As long as they're willing to say, listen, I don't need to hear about what share structure would best suit my needs. I just want a company. I'm the sole shareholder. I'm the sole director. I'm everything. I just need a company. I mean, that's, that's a situation where if we're able to take that out of the lawyer's hands and make it uh, more accessible to people, uh, number one, it makes it more affordable. It lets more people do it or give them the option of doing it. And number two, it's this idea that you touched on, Brett, you know, excess capacity. It gives lawyers more time to not focus on that type of work but focus on the higher level work where they can actually justify their fees and they can go out and and seek out those clients that are more high value clients for them. The other the other point I guess is worth making on this is you know right now law firms are very insular, right? They hire a bunch of lawyers and then they hire a bunch of more lawyers who are kind of fit the mold of the lawyers that already work there and then they hire a bunch of, you know, clerks to do the, the paperwork, the stuff that could be automated a lot of the time. And, and that's the way that these places have functioned for hundreds of years. But what, you know, take, for example, somebody in a family law office, right? Somebody comes in to, to start dealing with a divorce. Well, there's so much that goes along with getting separated or divorced. You have financial aspects, you have psychological aspects, right? There's a whole host of questions that lawyers aren't necessarily equipped to provide. So, you know, rather than have a structure where the lawyer can only do one thing in their office, well, let the lawyer team up with a psychologist and let them team up with a financial advisor that specialize in those types of things, marriage breakdown. And here you've created a, a one-stop shop, and that's something that, you know, lawyers could get tremendous benefit out of if they're partners in that kind of structure versus being a partner in a siloed place whereas you know where where let's face it i mean when when you are a family law lawyer you're part psychologist as well right you're you're the one that uh, you know are you're hearing about the problems and you're not necessarily trained To be able to answer in an appropriate way, you're trained to answer the legal questions, but these things are so intertwined. Uh, I I think the ability to open up a practice and make it something so much more than a strict legal practice would be a tremendous benefit to society.
2: So that's a straight call to the law societies to adopt (laughs) multidisciplinary practices
1: your words, not mine. (laughs) No, I I fully agree
2: with you. I think, you know, when we're looking at the ownership rules of law firms that prohibit any non-lawyer from taking an ownership in a law firm, which is effectively the only sort of form of organization that can provide legal services for money, that is the restriction, right? Like in the UK, Australia, that doesn't exist. In Arizona, it's not going to exist in the new year. And, you know, hopefully more of the law societies pick up on this Restriction about who can own a business that provides legal services, whether that's the sole offering or whether it's baked into this more holistic sort of idea is a huge barrier to, you know, I think lawyers being more important in society so that we can start baking ourselves into more of these areas that we're just totally left out of right now. And, you know, driving that number from 77 way down, you know, allowing more flexibility you know, things haven't gone astray in Australia and the UK. And a lot of like the concerns have already played out in other jurisdictions that look a lot like Canada. And those concerns were, you know, for naught. So um, I love that you went down that track because I'm in 100% agreement with you.
1: And we we haven't even touched on how technology companies could benefit. I mean, you imagine taking a technology company and pairing it with a law firm, and what a powerful engine that could become to create. You know, to really commoditize the basic legal services in such a way that gives access to as many people as possible, and really unlock the power of those lawyers to. Uh, you know, give advice where it's needed. Like I've always said about, you know, epilogue in this ecosystem of estate planning is that, you know, in an ideal world, the customer who wants estate planning services could be dropped anywhere along a spectrum and they could start the process with epilogue and we could find out a little bit of information about them and say, you know what, your situation's a bit too complicated. You should go talk to a lawyer, which we do, by the way. And you could have somebody start the process with a lawyer potentially and have the lawyer assess the situation and say, you know what, like your needs are pretty simple. Like you don't have to pay. 2000 bucks to get your will, like, Mm. why don't you just go use Epilogue? And we do have lawyers doing that right now. But that's sort of the idea that anybody should be able to walk into the car dealership and very quickly understand where their price point meets a service that's available to them and what they need to pay for a little extra for what's worth paying a little Mm. extra for and what uh, they can sort of do without if they just need basic services
2: transparency is what I'm hearing. And, you know, that's our exact MO at Good Lawyer is it's all about transparency. It's about um, putting clients, putting prices to clients up front, no surprises, it, trying to, at your best to explain the value. And, you know, I have conversations with lawyers almost every day in terms of pricing things because this is new to them and, you know, pricing a service that they've always billed out at three or 400 bucks an hour. Now they have to think about, okay, what, What is a reasonable fair price that, you know, I'm comfortable with that's also, you know, going to give this transparency and this like shift of risk off the client? Because right now, lawyers of very few service providers, you know, that I can think of, there's a handful out there, take basically zero risk when approaching the sale of their services. And that's just a dynamic that is for sure, I think, picking up steam.
0: And and you you also mentioned, uh, obviously, the transparency is a huge factor, but, you know, you guys obviously automate quite a bit, I believe, your offering at uh, Epilogue Wills. Where do you see the role? like you you kind of touched on it there, but maybe uh, expound on that a little bit. Like where do you see the role of of uh, technology and potentially even AI intersecting with the traditional legal practice? And, you know, what could firms do today if like if you were in charge of your old practice, let's say, like what types of steps would you take to implement some of these available technologies to to make this a little bit more efficient and transparent?
1: Yeah. so there's I mean, there's tools like ours, which are completely. Uh, online solutions that are directed at consumers to use. Uh, You start to see AI tools cropping up as well. Uh, As I mentioned before, we're part of the legal innovation zone, and there are some uh, amazing companies working out of there on some uh, AI technology, which is right now more geared at lawyers providing solutions that lawyers can implement in their own practices. Where, where I see that being really useful is in, again, making their process a lot more efficient. So, you know, historically, there would have been a research question that would have gone to a junior or a student, and they would have spent a few days researching it and a few days writing a memo. Well, I mean, there's a company that works out of the legal innovation zone that condenses that process. It automates the process almost completely. And it's They, I think they'll spit out like a 10-page memo in like 24 hours. Now, I don't think... Yeah, and it's it's incredible, but I don't think the intention... And this is, again, where a lot of the skepticism come in. People say, oh, well, they could never do as good of a job as my uh, junior that I'm charging out at $250 an hour. And I don't think that that's the intention, right? I don't think that they're out there saying, oh, you can fire all your juniors and just use our AI. And I think that's kind of the danger when people... Think about AI and law and they sort of dismiss it. They say, well, it's never going to replace what we have now. That's a fallacy and that's not the idea, right? The idea, though, is that instead of the student spending the first two or three days researching the topic and writing a memo, you can get that memo done a lot more cheaply and efficiently. And that's a starting point for that student, right? They don't have to end, you know all lawyers know this, right? When you're a junior and you're given research <laughs> projects, you spin your wheel. Sometimes you go down a rabbit hole. and like Sometimes
0: it, that's it, generous.
1: Yeah. It takes, <laughs> you know, and that, that's just the nature of things. Well, why don't we give everyone a head start, you know, and why don't we, why don't we start bringing some of these tools into law schools? Not, not to say, okay, you know, it's, this isn't like, um, you know, when you would read the Coles notes instead of the book and, and just do your book report based on that. No, like you still got to put the work in, but, we have these tools available you know let's let's use them to advance research you know it, the equivalent i guess is saying to somebody now oh yeah don't use quicklaw like i want you to go down to the law library and start <laughs> pulling out the books and doing all the research because that's the way that i did it when i was a student and you're going to learn that way well that doesn't make any sense and so these tools we can't look at them as being sort of the the solution to all of uh, the legal problems we have and we're not going to be able to type in a question at least not today type in a question and get like a definitive answer. Um, but these are tools that are being developed. And, uh, you know, there's companies out there doing a tremendous job of developing them and, and the students and, and law firms should be encouraged to look at them and use them.
2: Totally. And, but I, I do think that there's sort of one key underlying issue that I think I've kind of touched on a little bit that drives that behavior in my mind. And that is the billable hour and the fact that, If the student's research time gets cut in half, that is quite often, you know, half the billings for that exact same or close to work product. So that is a problem in my mind that's baked in right into the, the pricing model, which is to me so core to how lawyers operate. And, you know, the QuickBooks analogy, I really like that one. I feel like there's sort of step shifts with the profession and, you know, especially the big shops. They all kind of move in step shifts. So I'm sure... There was a period of time where the people using QuickBooks were, you know, were crazy. And then finally, you know, it was sort of like a minimum requirement that you're using QuickBooks, Westlaw, sorry, QuickLaw is what I'm talking about. And, you know, I think in the exact same way, there will be a step shift where using some of these, you know, AI tools, just general legal practice tools as well. But like Bluejay, there's going to be a step shift where all the big firms start using it almost at the same time, I guarantee you. And then that will slowly trickle down from there. But I I do find it is the the fundamental pricing model that drives this behavior, stifles innovation. And it's only when, you know, sort of the whole, the, the whole party is like, okay, we have to start using this one tool because it is so obviously better that we see a little improvement.
1: Yeah. So where I, I mean, I would almost argue in favor of a trickle up model.
2: Totally. Actually, <laughs> yeah. when I said it, I was kind of thinking the same and, thing. Yeah.
1: And you know, like when I, when I was, when I was sort of answering the last question, I was saying like, well, let's introduce these. Cause Listen, if if I got, if I, once I finished law school, if I, you know, when the firm that I went to article at, if they said to me, okay, we need you to do research and we need you to go to the library. I wouldn't have known where to start basically. (laughs) Like all the research that I was doing in law school was based in quick law and Westlaw. And if, if the firm that I was going to didn't have those tools, I don't know that I would have accepted a job there. Right. Because I'd say, well, these guys are doing it in an archaic way. So like what, what I've uh, what, what I'd really like to see is the law schools mm. introduce these tools, train yeah. the future lawyers to use these tools from day one. And then hopefully the firms look at that and say, oh, if we want to attract the best talent, if we want to the, attract the best future lawyers, we're going to have to start using these tools, too, because this is what they know how to do. And there, we, we know that it's only going to be two, three years of their uh, careers as lawyers that they're actually going to be doing this research, and then they're going to going to you know move into mid level or more senior roles and not be doing research all the time. But in order to grab these superstars early on, we're going to have to show them that we are also on the cutting edge.
0: And maybe just, I think that's a great point. And and actually one of my questions was what do law schools need to do differently? And now obviously you've touched on it there and a lot of law schools luckily do have a lot of those resources uh, for free for all their students. In fact, I remember when we, me and Brett both worked at a, uh, a bigger canadian firm when we articled and i had more resources as a law student than i did at the big yeah. firm which was kind of funny uh, and a bit of a surprise when we start seeing the the business end of things but uh, what is your opinion of law schools and how we're educating our lawyers at the moment and we touched on you know those multidisciplinary practices and potentially having psychology or maybe some tech or some business courses potentially built in there as well because let's be honest at the end of the day law is is part of the job, but if if you're at a smaller firm, you also have to run a business. You also maybe have to know some tech if something goes wrong. Uh, do you think that there's any room for improvement there?
1: There was another there was another tweet that I saw. I think it was earlier today. Again, don't remember who said it, but it's not. I'm not. I'm not clever enough to come up with these things. It was someone else. <laughs> um, they said, in true startup fashion, you guys will appreciate this. They said we need to A/B test law school. And they said, we've already tried A. Now we got to try B. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. the question is, yeah, what does B look like? Right. When I went to law school, I'm sure it was the same for you guys. Like it's all theoretical, right? It's uh, really engaging stuff. And it's a great education. It really like, you know, when I started law school and everyone said, we're going to teach you how to think like a lawyer. I didn't really 100% know what that meant. Uh, I think after I finished, I understood that a lot better. I think that lawyers are trained in a very specific way of thinking, which is useful in a ton of different disciplines. But uh, from a, in terms of practical knowledge, there wasn't a lot conveyed there. So when you're articling, that's really it's like learning on the job. Contrast that to other. Uh, Not just trades, like where, you know, if someone's training to become, uh, you know, an HVAC specialist, then as part of their training, they actually go out. But uh, trades aside, look at other professions, you know, when you're in medical school. Uh, you do practical placements where you're in the hospital or when you're in dental school, like that's part of the training. And that's something that, you know, in reflection was sorely lacking when I was in law school. And from what I understand, things are changing. I mean, one real big leap. uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with uh, what Ryerson is doing. They introduced the LPP as a solution to there being a shortage of articling positions here in Ontario. There were, um, students were graduating from law school, couldn't find articling positions. So this was an an articling alternative. But Ryerson just started their law school in September. So this year is the first year cohort going through law school. And if you look at their law school curriculum, it's very similar to what you guys would have taken in first year law school. It's like the standard courses, property, contracts, torts, constitutional, et cetera. But I'm looking at the, the, uh, the course descriptions and in every single one of them, virtually every single course, there's a line that says, you know, for example, in the contracts law class, students will have a practical experience interpreting and drafting legal contracts. Amazing. Well, I'll tell you, I took contracts in first year. I don't think I ever saw a contract. Um, Same year. Right. And yeah. once you get into the upper year courses, it's, it's mind boggling. Like the stuff they have, it's just, it's just so innovative. They have a, a course called a financial intensive course. and, it teaches law students how to look at financial statements and use excel right <laughs> so you talk about running a business like that's like excel is like the you yeah. know the, the cornerstone of any business right they have another course called the business of lawyering well matt that's exactly what you said right yeah. like this is like okay networking and billing yeah. like all the things that you just don't learn in law school but i, I think that what arison wants to achieve is very much this idea that you know we want our students to graduate from law school and be able to hit the ground running, and if they need to, if they if they want to go look for a job at a firm, they'll be trained in the practical aspects. They they will have drafted articles of incorporation in their business class, which is not mm-hmm. something I ever did as a student, but if they don't want to work in the forum or they, or they can't find a job at a firm, they're going to be self-sustaining. They'll have the practical knowledge and skills that they need to hang up a shingle and start their own solo practice, which is, which is incredible.
2: It is so innovative in the context of you know, our profession and law schools more specifically and what has been the same more or less education for, I mean, God knows how long, but it also kind of seems so obvious as innovative as it is, and without knowing a whole bunch about that Ryerson program, you know, Ryerson looked at what it meant to actually be a lawyer, the types of skills that one would need to be successful as a lawyer, and then mapped it back to the courses they're teaching, which I could definitely say was not my law school experience. There was very <laughs> little that I did that I could map directly to things and skills that I would need later on. So, um, yeah, big kudos to Ryerson because that is uh, Agreed. I, and amazing that they got approval to do it and everything like,
1: yeah, it and that it's a, it's a, it's a positive sign, right? That people are seeing so much value in this type of work and infusing the legal education with these other components, uh, like a quick story. When I was in first year law school, we, we had an assignment to, to draft a legal research memo. We were in first year. We'd never done this before. So somebody asked the prof, well, how do you draft a memo? Like, what's the format? What does it look like? And his answer was, well, I never worked at a law firm, so I I don't really know. So just, you know, do whatever you think seems right. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That's actually
0: probably closer to the reality in in the practice world than it is. Like you get taught how to do this formal memo in law school. And and once you go into a firm, if you write a formal memo, you'll probably get fired.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 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 for sure. As an articling student, I remember being told, no, that's not how we write a memo. It's too long. Like you got to get to the point. I mean, listen, these are all good things to know. No, but like, let's give students that education while they're paying for the education and let them get, like I said, hit the ground running when they're ready to start lawyering.
0: So a question I, now that we're on this topic that i like to put to our future of law guests, you have a student coming out of undergrad, who's not too sure what the next steps are in their life. They come to you and say, should I go to
1: law school? What's your answer? Like every good lawyer, I would say it depends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I said, there's there, there are so many benefits to going to law school. And I think that a lot of lawyers um, get stuck because uh, they go to law school. They've invested a lot of time and money in going to law school and they feel and they, they, you know, they get a well-paying job and then they feel as though there's no other option, right? I'm trained to do this one thing and it's just so not true. I mean, the the uh, you guys see it, you, you know, in your business and uh, we see it in ours that uh, the benefits of a law school education are not, you get way more to it than understanding like the theory behind law. And even when you're in practice, I mean, you learn a lot of practical things, but uh, there are a lot of really great skills that go along with it. But if someone's asking me, should I go to law school? I mean, the question really is, you know, do you understand what being a lawyer means and what that looks like? Because I don't know that I had a really great understanding of it when I started the process. I did not. Yeah.
2: (laughs) My answer would be absolutely, because it's changing so fast and it's getting really cool.
0: Yeah. That it's, there is, there is some uh, exciting developments in, in this professional question. And I wouldn't
2: have said that a few years ago, you know, I, I had a good time at the firm, but it didn't feel like it was right for me. And I can see how it would be grueling on a lot of people. And, you know, you just see a lot of, I think misery is maybe a bit strong, but you see a lot of unhappiness just kind of permeating the profession. And certainly before I came in, I had multiple People when I was running that painting business, lawyers that we were doing work for, and tell me not to go. They're like, "You're obviously making some good money doing this. Like, just keep doing this. Don't be a lawyer." And obviously, you know, didn't listen to that advice. But I do think I'm so hopeful in the last couple years, just seeing how quickly, you know, Epilogue coming out of nowhere, you know, starting to make some serious headway across Canada and companies, you know, like good lawyer. And just like the the world is growing in the legal tech sphere. But just I think the legal sort of innovation realm quickly. And it's really cool. There's obviously a lot of curmudgeons still around, but it's really at an exciting place in my mind um, in like the history of uh, the profession, certainly in Canada.
1: Yeah. It's an exciting time to be a lawyer or to be a former lawyer involved (laughs) in uh, technology. But, but one thing I do want to say is that, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say to everyone that like law is you know not a good profession. In fact, I really like being a lawyer. I like practicing and and uh, you know people expressed an interest in actually being a lawyer. I do try to talk to them about what it is like day to day to be a lawyer because that's very different than going to law school. Um, you know I practiced in tax and estate planning. I really did enjoy my areas of practice. And uh, I, I found it rewarding and fulfilling and all those things are possible, but uh, you know, you're, you're right, Brett. I mean, I think that for a lot of people, there are other aspects of the profession that are uh, really draining sometimes. And, uh, but uh, there are so many opportunities for lawyers out there. Uh, It's, it's, uh, it's, it's an exciting time. You're right.
0: That's a great answer. Well, and just kind of on that topic, you know, you went from, you said at the beginning of the conversation that you went from you know, being extremely skeptical of of an idea like epilogue a few years ago, and obviously now to quitting your traditional practice and jumping full with both feet into into this new venture. What changed? Like, what was it a gradual thing? Did you just did that need of the people that weren't being serviced? Like, what was it about this opportunity or this need that you saw that was able to change your mind on that?
1: I think, um, you know, initially it started as seeing a potential opportunity, um, but it's, the, the, the idea really evolved. Um, so when we started, we sort of looked at a way that we could help people, um, you know, get their estate planning done in an affordable manner, but we saw an opportunity to sort of throw in a lot of bells and whistles. Like let's, you know, there were some products that were existing online that did this sort of thing. And we felt like we could be an improvement on that. And we think we've achieved that, but initially the idea was like, we can make this sort of a what's out there. Plus, like we can really bring estate planning expertise into this world and create a system with all the bells and whistles. And one of the key conversations that really sort of changed my mind 180 on this was uh, Daniel and I participated in Y Combinator startup school, which is a, uh, an online uh, course that uh, you can sign up for anywhere in the world. And it connects you with other startup founders, not just in legal tech, but in all sorts of areas and uh, every week you'd have meetings with uh, you know, three or four of them just to talk about where you are in your business and the challenges, and they'd connect you with different people every week. So anyways, there was one week that we were connected to this guy who also happened to be in Toronto, and we were telling him about our idea to build out all these things to make estate planning accessible, but also to like you know bring all of our knowledge of estate planning lawyers down to the average person so they could create these amazing wills, and he listened to our whole rant, and when we were finished, he said, okay, that sounds all, that it all sounds amazing, but, and I'm gonna ask a question and it's gonna sound a little bit naive. He goes, I, I've heard of a will before, but I don't really know what it is. And that was like an mm. aha moment for us. It was like, okay, hold on a second. Like we cannot build like the Porsche of um, online estate planning tools because it's going to end up doing exactly what we don't want it to do. It's not gonna help anybody. What we need to do is build a basic tool That somebody with absolutely zero knowledge of estate planning can just hop on, get their planning done, and that's what's going to achieve our objective of getting this into as many hands as as possible. Once you start going down that road, you really start to think about, okay, like how can we make this as accessible as possible? And then, of course, that leads into all the other things that we've talked about today, which is, you know, how can we make law as a whole more accessible to people?
2: Totally. And that is the goal. Give me the Kia. (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly. Give me some, give me options, right? Yeah. Like that's what you want, right? Totally. You want options.
0: And, yeah. and I, I couldn't agree more in the sense that that's one of the issues that we're trying to solve a good lawyer is that a lot of people, you know, they don't even know what they need, you know, and it's, it's being able to explain, okay, here's what this does. And here's why that may or may not be important in your circumstance, but just getting that knowledge and that awareness is uh, so critical. And so uh, I see we're at time here, but just last question I have for you, and we we like we like to get uh, all of our guests to answer this before they leave. Just any resources that you've had along your way, whether that be legal uh, or from your business perspective, that you found particularly helpful, that you think may uh, be helpful for others.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll give you three, two of them I mentioned already. So one of them is um, Y Combinator Startup School, uh, which we started really early on in the process. And it was all about just connecting with other people. You know, sometimes when you're in law, the answer to the question of, you know, why should I do it this way? The answer is like, well, it's always been done this way. So this is how you do it. Whereas like you get into, I know that world, is, that is the answer. Right? And I'm just like, yeah. no, it's always been That's, done this way. We right? both it's, laughed. Yeah. And, but, but you get into this startup world and it's like, well, just try something different. And test it and see if it works. And like so that that experience sort of opened up our mind to that. And again, like having these conversations with people that were totally disconnected from the estate planning world, where we have a lot of assumed knowledge, and we could talk about our ideas with people who had zero connection to this world and get their feedback uh, was tremendously helpful. Another resource that I'll mention, and again, touched on it a couple times, legal innovation zone. So. Uh, which is a legal tech incubator based in Toronto. We are a member and it's a, a great resource because there are so many other, uh, legal tech entrepreneurs that we are in a community with a lot of them are former lawyers. And so they appreciate the, sort of the, um, you know, legal experience and are building tech products based on that. But one thing that I really think is worth mentioning is it's not just, uh, sort of a physical space or a community of, you know, 15 startups that are, uh, collaborating on some things and and able to bounce ideas off one another, but they do a lot of online programs. So if you just have an idea that you like, Hey, this, this could be an interesting legal tech idea. They have like a program where they'll just connect you with somebody. So you can talk to them for like 30 minutes about your idea and see if it's even worth exploring and how you might do that. And then they've got another program. That's like a six week online program where you can actually start building out your idea or understanding how you would build out the idea. And then they've got another program that is a little bit longer where you're able to, um, you know, iterate on your idea and get feedback, which is really the main thing on how you're going to build it out and really bring your idea to fruition. So the Legal Innovation Zone, I think, is a tremendous resource for anybody who is, uh, has even if it, you're just in the ideation phase, it's worth checking out their website, looking into it and sort of seeing how far you can go. And then, of course, there's the startups like us. That's when you're a little bit more of a mature early stage startup or mid stage company where you're, uh, you know, you have a team, you may be starting to earn some revenue already, and you're looking at ways at really accelerating your growth. So, and the third one, third one's kind of uh, just a fun one. Uh, I I was not big into podcasts when I was, uh, when I was uh, a lawyer, it's just, you know, I used to spend my subway ride sort of arranging my schedule for the day. But um, once I got into the startup world, I started listening to uh, a lot of people have uh, how I built this, just a fun podcast. Beautiful. But really what it tells you is that like, there's no such thing as a straight line to success, <laughs> that there's bumps along even the most successful journey and uh you know hearing the stories behind that uh was more fun than anything but again really good listen so if you haven't listened to it then again i recommend it
0: have you got his book yet i have not it's it's excellent yeah audio book i'd recommend it's but it's a great listen and i I was even surprised because i listened to that podcast quite a bit but uh the book is excellent he's he's great so double down on that. Well Aaron, thank you very much for uh, spending uh, some time with us. We have a great conversation. we really appreciate your insights. Obviously we think you have a fantastic company as you are one of good lawyers partners and we greatly appreciate that uh, you know and I hope that we both can find success in the, in the coming months and years and grow together and uh, hopefully be a, a part of this revolution that we were speaking about today.
1: Yeah absolutely it's uh, exciting to be a part of it and exciting to be a uh, part of it with you guys.
2: Amazing. Our, our, our pleasure my friend we're all, we're all tackling the same
0: problem trying to make law more accessible yeah. excellent thanks again for joining us if you liked what you heard please rate, download and subscribe until next time we hope you have a great week